0: So, that said, I hope you enjoy today's episode.
1: Welcome to another great session. Today we have Amy Herman. Amy is a lawyer and an art historian who uses works of art to sharpen observation, analysis, and communication skills. I know this is of a particular interest for our audience, so I'm very excited to bring Amy today to speak with you. Amy helps her clients hone their visual intelligence to recognize the most important and useful information, as well as recognize biases that may negatively impact decision-making. Amy leads training internationally for New York Police Department, The FBI, the French National Police, the Department of Defense, the State Department, Fortune 500 companies, the military and the intelligence community. Welcome, Amy. It's so great to have you with us today.
2: Thank you so much for having me as a guest. I'm really thrilled to be here.
1: Amy, to begin with, could you take us back and share with us your backstory? How did you end up where you are today?
2: Of course. I start by saying that I think it's as important to know what you don't want to do as it is to know what you do want to do. And I'm trained as a lawyer and I'm also an art historian, but I didn't enjoy practicing the law. It was very practical, but I just I didn't enjoy it and I thought there has to be a way to combine my love of art, the visual analysis and the legal analysis. So I started this company over 20 years ago. When I left the private practice of law I went to work for a small company a small museum here in New York City called the Frick Collection it's a real gem of an art museum and while I was there I started this program that was not my idea it was being run at Yale by the Yale Center for British Art with Yale Medical School and with Yale's permission I did a version of a program for medical students and a few years after that I realized this is applicable to far more than medical students. It was applicable in the business community and the intelligence community. So I, cold, I made a cold call to the New York City Police Department and they heard what I was saying. And that collaboration landed on the front page of the Wall Street Journal and my world exploded.
1: <laughs> and I love that story. I'm glad that you, you mentioned it. Can you give us a little more details? Because I think that you, it's such a great example for taking action By taking action, you can have that big break and then have a completely different trajectory for your career versus if you never took that action.
2: That is exactly right. And as I say to a colleague of mine all the time, we don't seize opportunities, we make them. And by picking up the phone in 2004 and calling the New York City Police Department, I didn't think it was so bold back then. I just, I had a good idea or I thought it was a good idea. And I said, you know, I'm going to call them. And I realized that the growth of my company and the growth of my program and everything that I do comes from some some initiative that I've taken. I either call a stranger or I write a letter or I start a conversation. And it's amazing what can fall into your path. The the thing is, I think these things fall into all of our paths, but it's what we take advantage of, and we have to be open, our eyes have to be open, and our senses have to be open to realize that these opportunities are out there.
1: That is very true. Could you give us other examples when taking bold action led to growth for your company?
2: Absolutely. I was on a flight coming home in 2012, and I take planes all the time, I'm on, you know, even... Now the pandemic is still happening, I'm traveling. And I got onto a plane and I sort of had a headache and I just wanted to go home. I was just tired. I had been teaching for a few days. And I sat down to, next to a woman who wanted to talk to me. And I thought I was one step away from putting my headphones in and just putting music on and going into my own world. But she was so nice and we started talking and we talked all the way to New York. And when we got off the plane, I said, maybe we'll have lunch one day. Do you want to exchange business cards? And she said, oh, no, I don't give my business card to anybody. I said, but we just talked for two hours. She said, I'm a literary agent. I don't give out my card because everybody wants to write a book. But she reached over and took my card and she said, but you have a story to tell and you're going to write a book for me and it's going to be on the New York Times bestseller list. And I sort of laughed and I thought, yeah, right. And don't you know, she's my agent now. I don't make a move without her. And that book was life-changing. And if I tell you that I was two seconds away from just putting those headphones in my ears and cutting out the world and having that conversation on that airplane changed my entire life. I've now written three books and my company and my books and my first book was translated into nine languages. The second book is translated into four languages all because I had a conversation on an airplane when I didn't really want to.
1: That is incredible. And I think there was another element there when this lady told you at the end that she never gives a card to anyone. Right. Some of us could get offended and say something
2: polite and walk away, but you didn't. I didn't. You know why? Because we have, I don't believe we have five senses, we have six senses. And my sixth sense told me, I had spoken to her from all the way from Cleveland, Ohio to New York. I had a very very good feeling about her. She was kind. She was nice. And if I continued to talk to her, even with my splitting headache, I thought, you know, there's something special about her. And so my sixth sense said, give her your business card. And, you know, I I didn't know what agency she was with. I didn't know anything. And I thought, I'm going to go with my gut here and give her my business card. And she said to me, I'll call you and we'll have lunch within two weeks. And she did. And I tell people that when you have a gut feeling about something, you need to be able to articulate what that gut feeling is because everyone has a different gut feeling. But when you have a gut feeling, go with it. Go with it. Good, bad, or indifferent. Go with it because you never know what's going to happen. And we, we have a gut feeling for a reason.
1: Very true. And sometimes you get a gut feeling and it doesn't
2: make any sense. It's- That's right it doesn't but if you step back and try to figure out where that gut feeling comes from not only do you learn more about the gut feeling you learn more about yourself
1: very very true and the more you listen to it the more you will get that guidance and then absolutely you will make and the easier your journey will be
2: that's right that is right So it's been it's been very interesting listening to my gut as I get older and as I get deeper and deeper into my business, which I've had for so many years, you learn a lot about your own instinct and you learn a lot about other people and you have to start listening to your own wisdom. And it doesn't mean we don't make mistakes. It just means to listen very closely to your own wisdom.
1: Amy, and as you are working with such incredible clients, what surprised you?
2: I guess in the end, it ended up not being such a surprise, but when I work with some of these people and I see their response to looking at works of art, I've always known that art is powerful because I'm an art historian and I've studied it for so many years and it's always been powerful for me. But when I see that that power of art can be channeled and applied and introduced to people who would never think of looking at works of art to do their jobs more effectively, the power just never ceases to amaze me. I work with police chiefs and intelligence officers and NATO officials, and we're all looking at art together. And it just never ceases to amaze me that art can be so powerful and help so many people to do their jobs.
1: Amy, and could you elaborate on how can looking at art help us be better problem solvers?
2: Absolutely. I believe that the best things happen, what I call on the exit ramp of your comfort zone, when you leave your comfort zone. And so when I take people out of their comfort zone, you know, and I work with leaders and CEOs, it's a little disarming when I say, well, we're going to look at art and they're they're like, what are you kidding me? I don't look at art. I'm running a company. I'm running a fortune 500 company. But when you leave your comfort zone and you agree to go there, You see things and you hear things and you experience things that you wouldn't experience otherwise. And I believe that by taking people who don't look at art for a living, and I take them out of that world and I show them works of art, not just to look at Picasso or Manet, but to show them how the analytical skills of looking at a a work of art are directly applicable to the work that they're doing, it helps them go back with a renewed sense of vision and a renewed sense of how they can approach problems in ways that they had never thought of because they just experienced something that they've never experienced before. I really do believe the best things happen on the exit ramp of our comfort zones.
1: Amy, and what are some of the most common aha moments you notice with your clients when they go through your program? Mm -hmm.
2: The, The first aha moment we have usually comes very early on. I can put two people, they can be two analysts, two uh, investment bankers, two anything, in front of the same, let's say it's a painting. And I say to them, I want you to each spend 10 seconds just looking at this. And then I say to each of them, I wanna hear what each of you sees in this image. And as they describe, the first one describes and then the second one describes, they come up with totally different versions of what we're looking at. We're looking at exactly the same painting and I hear two totally different versions. And you know what that tells me? That's fine in the art museum, but what is happening in the operating room? What is happening in the boardroom? What's happening at the crime scene? And so it reinforces for people and gives them an aha moment and me as well that no two people see Anything the same way. And that's probably the biggest takeaway from my program is that no two people see anything problems, solutions, employees, products, investments, crimes, witnesses, nobody sees anything the same way. And we all need to be better communicators to be able to solve our problems.
1: So once your clients understand that the way they see the world is very different from other people, You mentioned to us already that they need to then learn to communicate what they see. That's right. What else they need to learn? How do they use that information to be better at their job?
2: Because once you go into a situation, here's an example. Say uh, I run a department of 20 people, and there's been really very low morale in the department. Say everyone's coming back to work after the pandemic. I'm just coming up with an example. And there's been low morale. And the uh, chairman of the department says, "Okay, we're all going to have a meeting this afternoon to discuss the situation. When you go into the meeting, instead of saying, we're going to go in and discuss the situation, that head of the department needs to go around the table and get everyone to communicate what their version of the problem is. Because by understanding, going into problem solving, that no two people see anything the same way, that goes for problems as well. So when you're trying to solve a problem, we need to state explicitly what we perceive the problem to be, understanding that no two people see it the same way. And this is so important from a very basic level of just communicating things that need to be done to communicating potential solutions or potential ideas. Because when no two people see anything the same way, it behooves us all to communicate our perceptions to make sure that we're all on the same page and to help us solve problems together. So by looking at art, I'm taking people out of that scenario, helping them with their communication skills, because art is foreign to all of these people, so that when they go back into their comfort zone, they're going to be better communicators. Amy, and when
1: someone communicates what they see, let's say a problem they're observing and how they see it, are there any best practices you recommend So that they are heard by the other person, because then we're also dealing here with bias, people hear what they want to hear.
2: That's exactly right. So I have one rule that I incorporate into all my discussions about best practices. I ask everyone who has read my books or to take who takes my class to stop using two words, obviously and clearly because the truth is we live and work in a very complicated world nothing is obvious and even less is clear and rather than starting off a meeting by saying well obviously we have a case of x what if it's not what if it's not obvious to me what if i don't understand why so i tell people to say instead you know it appears to be a case of x be, to me because of y and z that way you're explaining what may be obvious to you, but you're bringing everyone else into your circle. So by taking obviously and clearly out of the conversation, it forces you to be a better communicator. Because if you think about it, our world is so complicated right now, nothing is obvious. There's really, uh, other than the fact that so many things are broken. And so the idea of forcing yourself to be a better communicator It's just the way we need to be moving in that direction. So I encourage my participants to, when they're talking about a work of art, there's nothing obvious about a work of art. There's nothing. So I take those words out of the conversation so that when they return to the workplace, not only does it make them better communicators, it makes them more descriptive when they're faced with a crisis or a problem.
1: When you mentioned that you ask your students to not say two Mm -hmm. words, Mm I was thinking, what about the other three words that I know you don't want them to say? And those are, I don't know.
2: That is right. That is right. The words, I don't know, shut a conversation down. They just shut a conversation down. And the best way to solve problems is by opening the door to communication, not shutting it down. So when someone says, well, why do you feel that way? And they cross their arms and say, well, I don't know. That doesn't help anyone. It's better to say, you know, I'm not sure what the source of my anxiety is, but I've been feeling anxious about this initiative since the day we started talking about it. And then let's go back to the day we started talking about. What were the conditions? What were the circumstances? Instead of saying, "Well," and so if we are actively thinking about not shutting down conversations, the more we leave the door open, even with with people with whom we disagree. So that if two people disagree, instead of saying, well, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard, it's better to say, you know, I don't know how you got there. I can't see how you got there. Can you walk me through how you got there? And that opens the door saying, you know, I may not agree with you, but I'm going to meet you where you are. And I'm going to listen to you in the hope that you're going to listen to me. Very
1: true. And for the speaker themselves, they're also missing out because as soon as they say, I, I don't know, then the brain is not searching for an answer.
2: That's exactly right. You And your brain shuts down too. And something very important that you said before, we hear what we want to hear. And so if we're listening for what we want to hear, we're going to miss other information that really has the potential to benefit all of us.
1: Amy, and how do you teach your students to deal with this confirmation bias issue?
2: Well, when we're talking about confirmation bias, I ask them to use my methodology, which is four A's. Each of the words begins with an A. When you have a new situation, I want you to first assess the situation in your head and say, okay, well, what do I have in front of me? Then I want you to analyze it and say, okay, what information do I have? What don't I have? What do I retain? What do I get rid of? How do I prioritize it? Then I want you to articulate what you see in the situation because what happens with confirmation bias is we hear something, we make a decision in our head and then we look for that solution based on what we've already thought of in our head. We wanna confirm what we already think rather than going through the process of those four A's. If you stop, and you pause and you assess, you analyze, you articulate, and you act, it ensures that you're not going to be a victim of confirmation bias because it's so easy in our complicated world to say, "Oh, I've seen this before, I know what the answer is. Be careful because no two situations are the same. And rather than have your brain confirm what you want to see, take all that information in pause, and go through those four A's even in your head, and that's a vehicle to help you to avoid confirmation bias.
1: Amy, and to make sure that our listeners and viewers can really understand what you're saying and utilize it in their life, could you give us an example of using those steps in day-to-day work?
2: Absolutely. So, uh, so, I'll give you an example. Let's say in a business, let's say somebody has just been hired. Okay. And uh, someone goes into the head of the department and says, I'm having a problem with the new employee. Nothing more specific I'm having a problem. And you say, well, what's the problem? And the person who's complaining says, well, he's difficult to work with. Okay. So, Now the head of the department has the information, somebody who a longtime employee has complained that the new employee is difficult to work with. So as the head of of the department to ask certain questions, I have to assess the situation and say, okay, number one, how long have you been working with this person? And in what context have you been working with them? Then you need to analyze the situation and say, well, how important is this new hire to the work that I need to get done? And in comparison, how much do I value the employee who's complaining to me? And as the leader, how do I balance the complaint that I've heard from a long-time employee about a new employee that we've hired? And then we need to analyze the problem we're talking about. Is it a short-term problem? Is it a long-term problem? Does it have a potential to become toxic in the department? And then I need to articulate the situation to not just the complainer, but I need to articulate the situation to the person to whom the complaint is about, and then I need to act and make a decision. And I need to balance what I've heard about the employee, how much I value the new employee, what the situation is, and as a leader, I need to make that decision. But the two things that it involves is me pausing to listen to what one of my colleagues has to say, and for me to go through those four A's before just making a decision. And that's, and you know, I'm not asking people, their plates are full enough. This could take 20 minutes to think it through, do the balance, but it all involves a pause, just stopping and putting those four A's into action. And when you think about it, it clarifies the problems that we have.
1: Amy, could you give us some examples of how people realize your students, how they realize that they have confirmation bias while looking at works of art? Mm hmm. Mm-hmm.
2: What happens is when I ask them to look at works of art, I have an exercise that um, it's very powerful. And I didn't realize how powerful it was until until I started doing it over and over again. What happens is I put a work of art up on the wall and I pair up, people are in pairs. One person has to keep their eyes open and one has to close them. And the person whose eyes are open has 45 seconds to describe the work of art to their partner whose eyes are closed. Now these are not people that work with art all the time so they don't know what they're looking at when your eyes are closed you're vulnerable you're dependent on someone so number one there's a sense of dependency that's often a client relationship you know client is dependent on us and number two the person who's doing the describing has a very short window of opportunity and they have to be precise and objective because someone is relying on them and They have to be able to speak in such a way that the partner is not going to rely on confirmation bias and say, oh, I know exactly what you're describing because nobody in my classes, most of the people have not seen these works of art before. So when I tell you that art is a fresh start, it's it's just new data. I'm not teaching anyone art. I'm just giving their left brain a rest and I'm engaging their right brain so that When they go back to their left brain with data and analytics and markets and reports, they will see things more perceptively. When people come up to me after the uh, description exercises and they say that when they open their eyes and they look at the work of art that was just being described to them by their partners, frequently they say, I would have never described it that way. So they understand that no two people see anything the same way and no two people communicate the same way. And it's an eye-opener for everybody about how biased we can be when our eyes are, and I say, quote, open, and also how we need to be better listeners when it comes to problem solving and communicating with each other.
1: It sounds like a very powerful exercise. Amy, so we spoke about two very important elements when it comes to problem solving. One is that not two people see the situation the same way. Mm -hmm. And the second one is confirmation bias. Yes. What are some other important elements related to problem solving that people can strengthen their skill set in those areas?
2: Sure, sure. As- there are two things. The first one is, and it's so simple, but the pandemic has taught us to pause, to stop, to look and to listen. People that work in competitive businesses were in such a hurry to get from point A to point B to put the fires out that nobody stopped to see what was broken. Nobody stopped long enough to see if there was a more effective way of doing something. And the journalist Frank Bruni, I quote him all the time, he wrote about the power of a pause. And he said, a pause is when passion's cool, civility gets oxygen, and wisdom finds its wings passion's cool, civility gets oxygen, and wisdom finds its wings. We have to find a time every single day to pause. And I'm not talking about meditating. I'm talking about pausing and taking stock of where we are, what's been accomplished, and what still needs to be done. Because if we just go 100 miles an hour all day long, it's disastrous for everybody. And in the same vein, I use, I try to practice a concept called festina lente. It's a Latin phrase that means to make haste slowly. It means we all have to cross the finish line. We all need to get a certain amount of work done. But if we don't stop to communicate with each other, to look around to see what's happening, be in synchronicity, we all lose. We need to pause and we need to practice festina lente so we don't forget the big picture and the small details. They're equally important. And when it comes to problem solving, it's not just the big looming what's on fire at the moment. We need to look at the overarching problem. And on that same vein, in that same vein, I want to bring a concept to the fore that is so important when it comes to problem solving. It is don't let perfection Be the enemy of good. Meaning, I know we all want to be perfect and we want to strive for perfection, don't let it get in the way of good. Sometimes good is good enough and leaders need to decide, you know what, I have to accept good in this situation and move on where I can achieve perfection. And a leader has to know how to make that decision, don't let perfection be the enemy of good.
1: Amy, let's say someone now listening to us or viewing this video and they're thinking, what Amy says makes a lot of sense. I really want to use the works of art to become a better problem solver. What's Mm -hmm. some of the steps they can make to start that process? And let's assume it is someone who has very superficial understanding of art and Mm -hmm. it's not the area of expertise. Mm
2: -hmm. Sure, well, there are a couple of things. What I do, what I lay out in my book is a model for thinking about the artist's process to solve a problem. So we don't necessarily have to have access to art to articulate how to use this process. And I break the book down into three sections, prep, draft, and exhibit. And when we have to solve a problem, we need to prep. We need to think about all the materials we might need, all the resources we might need. Then we need to spend time drafting a solution and finally we have to put thought into exhibiting as an artist does how we're going to implement the solution all the different iterations that it might have and I break each of those sections down into let's break things into bite-sized pieces I talk about how deadlines can loom you know deadlines hang over our heads and they they're going to kill us but I talk about breaking deadlines into smaller deadlines so that you can celebrate your accomplishments, smaller deadlines, and then the big deadline doesn't loom. I talk about defining your problem. What I spoke about earlier, let's go around the table and talk about what the problem is. So I I lay out this methodology, and the truth is we don't need to look at art to do this. I'm using art as the template, as something new and fresh and different to think about when it comes to problem-solving. and so. The idea of looking at the artist process, how does the artist create something? Inspiration, thinking about something, gathering his or her materials, doing preparatory sketches, first draft of the painting, and then finally creating the work of art and how is it going to be exhibited? So when I'm teaching leaders, I'm not advocating. I mean, of course, it's wonderful to go to a museum or a gallery to clear your head if you can do that. But if you can't, Think about this methodology of breaking down problem solving into prep, draft, and exhibit, and breaking down your deadlines into bite-sized pieces, and it makes the whole thing that much more approachable.
1: Amy, and uh, what were some works of art? And you will be able to answer this question better than almost any other person in the world because of your area of expertise, but what were some works of art, that really taught you a lot about problem solving?
2: Well, the first uh, artist that I'm going to tell you about, who's one of my favorites, is an artist from Italy named Giorgio Morandi. And many people have not heard of Giorgio Morandi. He was born in Bologna and he died in Bologna and he spent almost his whole life there. And what, what Morandi did is he painted jars and cups and saucers and vases and plates over and over and over again. And when people hear Mirandi's name, they think, oh, so boring. But I am one of the people who says, I love Mirandi because there's a quiet subtext. He's constantly moving the pieces around. He's moving the cups and the jars and the vases and the saucers. And it's really not about those things. It's about light and shadow and weight and appearance. And he, I think in Mirandi's work, he was always trying to solve a series of problems. And by looking at his little still life paintings, most of them are very small how he, look, we all do the same thing every day, right? But no two days are ever the same. And I think that Morandi really leveraged that idea of moving pieces around. The other artist that I wanna talk about is one that everyone knows is Picasso. And Picasso, yes, he's talented. No question, he's talented. But Picasso has an attribute that I think more leaders need to demonstrate. And it's called agility. The ability to express that talent in so many different ways. Look at all the things Picasso mastered. Paint, pencil, pastel, crayon, wood, bronze, gold, ceramic. He was a painter and a sculptor and a printmaker. And we need a little more of that agility because I believe that leaders, it's a combination of talent and agility. And I think that looking at Picasso's works to see the range of one human being is inspiring for leaders to say, you know, this is more than my talent, it's my ability to be agile in difficult circumstances, and it's my ability to give my teens the opportunity to rise to the occasion to also be agile and let them solve problems. So, Mirandi moves the pieces around and solves problems in his paintings, and Picasso demonstrates how important it is for us to be agile with our materials.
1: Amy. And when you became very fascinated with problem solving and connection between art and problem solving, it all originated from that program that you mentioned.
2: Yes. But but then what fueled you to dedicate your life to it? It became your life's work. It did. And I can remember the exact moments when this happened. My first book called Visual Intelligence was published in 2016. And a few years after that book was published, Someone from another publisher said to me, you know, I know this method is good, but why do these people keep coming back to you, doctors and nurses and physicists and researchers? Why do they keep coming back? And I had to think about that. I I didn't have an answer that was readily available. And then I realized it's because everybody has a problem to solve. Everything is broken. And people thought, well, Amy taught us something new about looking at art for our communication skills maybe she can teach us something new in the realm of problem solving. And so I created the next iteration of my work, not just focused on, you know, observation, perception, and communication, but now with the added benefit of thinking about problem solving in a different way. And it's opened the world to me to looking at the artist process. And I'm not an artist, I'm not creative that way, but it's enabled me to see the artistic process in a different way. And frankly, it's been really interesting to do that.
1: Amy, and as you were teaching such incredible students all over the world, what did you learn from them?
2: You know, I can only hope that my students learn a fraction from me as much as I learn from them. One of the most important things that I've learned is Some of the smartest people are not necessarily the most educated people. That just because you have a formal education or you have a certain number of degrees doesn't mean you're the smartest person in the room. And I also have learned that people's experience, if they listen to their experience, gives them so much knowledge and wisdom. And the ability, the other thing that I've learned from so many of my participants. It's a wonderful line. People say, we have two ears and one mouth for a reason. We need to use them proportionally. We should be listening twice as much as we are talking. Because when I listen to my participants, I listen to the police officers and the doctors and the nurses. If I take the time to listen to their issues, their problems, to hear about what's broken in their world, it enables me to do my job more effectively. And so when we're all trying to succeed in this very competitive world, I really believe that one of the keys to success is in learning to be a good listener. And that's what I have learned from so many of my clients, that if I listen to them, I actually become a better communicator with them because I know the issues that they want to address and I know some of the things that they want to hear but it involves me stopping talking and listening to them.
1: Amy, and in working with so many people in very important professions, what were some common biggest pain points that is very visible to you that they are facing?
2: Yeah, I think the idea of the pain points is about effective communication and that If we've learned anything during this pandemic, we've learned a lot about our own work, our capabilities, our strengths, our weaknesses. And I think we need to carry that forward with us. But effective communication has renewed importance now because many people are working from home and that's not gonna change. We are living in a virtual world. Look at us talking today. How many times are we meeting with clients and with stakeholders and investors in a virtual world, we didn't do that before. We got on a plane and we went to meet face-to-face. So effective communication was important before, but it has even renewed significance now because we're communicating with our stakeholders in a virtual environment. We used to get on a plane and go see people. We don't do that anymore, or we, we, we're not doing that yet. So I think the most difficult thing for leaders of organizations and departments is rethinking their communication skills and making them as equally effective as they were before. And that involves what I said before, agility, the ability to communicate virtually, to communicate in person when we have to, and to make those decisions. I think effective communication was a pain point before, and it is still a pain point, but we need to put this crisis to work and learn as much as we can as quickly as we can.
1: Amy, for somebody who is now listening to us or watching us, if they wanted to make changes tomorrow morning at 8 a.m., what are some practical things they can do so that this, this time with us doesn't become just another thing they listened to and forgot, but something that they implemented and benefited
2: from? Sure. I think that one small change that I ask people to try to enact every day. And it's one small thing, you know, we have enough to do. I don't want to add to people's plates. But I say to them, try to notice one thing every day that you didn't see the day before. And to make a note of it, either write it in a journal, make a note of it on your phone, take a picture of it. One thing that you noticed that you didn't notice the day before. And why do I ask you to do that? There's a real reason, there's a scientific reason. Because when you train your brain to look for something that you didn't see before, you're engaging in neuroplasticity. You're, you're training your brain to go from narrow vision to slightly broader, to slightly broader, to slightly broader. And the good news is that when you practice that over and over again, your brain will eventually do that on its own. And when it comes to problem solving, multiple perspectives make for better decision-making. So every day, tomorrow at 8 a.m., when you leave the house or you go to a new work day, say, I'm gonna notice one thing today that I didn't see yesterday. And if you make a practice of it, you're actually engaging your brain to become more elastic and to consider more options and think about more things. And I believe, and science has shown that this helps in the problem-solving ability that we have. This
1: is such a great advice, Amy. Thank you so much. You're welcome. We are getting close to wrapping up. I wanted to ask you more broader question. It doesn't have to be limited to your current focus, Mm -hmm. just over the last few years, what were some aha moments, realizations that were instrumental for your life or for your business? Mm.
0: Well,
2: I had two of them. (laughs) The first one is very personal, but it affected my life in every way. In 2014, I went to the doctor just for a routine checkup. And two days later, I had a diagnosis that I had cancer. I'm so sorry. My response was, well, I don't have time for this. I'm running a business. I have a career, I have clients. And I said to the doctor, I don't have time for this. And she said to me very forthrightly, she said, you need to make the time for this. She said, because if you don't, you're not gonna be here in six months to discuss this. And it was a wake up call for me that all of a sudden I had unforeseen circumstances, a huge looming problem, all this chemotherapy and surgery, and I took it one piece at a time. Instead of saying I have this whole cancer diagnosis, one week at a time, one session of chemotherapy, and I put one foot in front of the other because as they say in, in mission critical, failure was not an option, dying was not an option, and I applied the same standard to my work, one step at a time and I lost all my hair and I had five surgeries and 16 rounds of chemo and here my hair is back, I'm alive, but that personal, I'm not even gonna call it a setback, that roadblock forced me to take other detours that were applicable not only in my personal life to remain alive, but also to help my business thrive. And it reminds me in one of the parting lines that I wanna to give to your listeners or your watchers of this, I'm going to quote Henry James, he said, try to be the person on whom nothing is lost. And as I came out of my cancer journey, I said, there's a whole world to engage in and I'm being given a second chance. So I try to be the person on whom nothing is lost. And I try to encourage my participants and my readers to do the same. It helps us personally, professionally, and certainly with problem solving.
1: I'm so sorry, Amy, that you had to go through it. I'm so glad that you're okay.
2: Thank you for the kind words, but you know what? I'm not sorry. It changed my life. I wouldn't wish it on anybody, but it changed my life and gave me a renewed perspective that I think enhances my life in a way that nothing else would have. So, and I'm, I'm very healthy now and very grateful.
1: Amy, and you mentioned that there were two aha moments. What was the second one?
2: Uh, that's a good question. The second, <laughs> the second one was when I became a parent. And again, at the, at the risk of being personal, because when I became a parent, I realized that I was charged with guiding how someone else sees their world. And I realized that I didn't want my child to see the world the way I do. I wanted to give him the tools to be able to engage in the world in a way that he wanted to. And so by using art to teach him, and he's not, you know, people say, oh, your son must love art. He doesn't love art the way I do but art has become a tool for him. And so the aha moment was in being a mother and realize that you're charged with guiding somebody to give them the tools, not only to engage in their profession, but in their world. And also taking the lessons that I've learned from taking a cancer journey to uh, not let a good crisis go to waste. (laughs) Thank
1: you, Amy, so much for sharing personal aha moments. I think those are, often the most helpful for people to hear. Mm-hmm.
2: And our lives are intertwined. You know, there's no line that separates the world we work in and the world we live in. They're the same world. And so the more effective we become in living the lives in the world we live in, the better we're going to be in the world we work in. I really do believe that.
1: mean, the last question I wanted to ask you is, what were some, maybe two or three books that were, absolutely transformational for your life?
2: Mm, that's a good question. Uh, one of the books I was just talking about yesterday is a book called The Boys in the Boat. And it's about, the, it's about a team of rowers in the Olympics uh, in, I believe it was the 1938 Olympics. And it was a, about a team of underdogs from the University of Washington and how they beat Hitler's team. In the Olympics, And the reason I talk about it is because it's not about rowing. It's about understanding the collaborative and the team dynamic. That nobody does it alone. Nobody works all alone. Nobody works in a silo. And we have to take the time to be in synchronicity with others if we're going to cross the finish line and win the game. And the boys in the boat just, it, it, you cheer on the underdog and you say, you know what, there is good in the collaborative effort. Uh, That was really, that was a a wonderful book that I really enjoyed. And I'm trying to think of another book uh, that really had a profound effect on my life and my work. It's a very good question. Mm. The Boys in the Boat tops the list. I'm just taking a quick look at my bookshelf behind me that I always use for inspiration. Of course. I. Oh, I will tell you one. It's not specifically, um, but I've recently been rereading short stories that are connected by a theme. And the reason I tell you that is because I believe that our work and our life are series of short stories that are connected by a theme. And at the risk of incorporating looking at art again Art history is filled with, well, this painting is in the context of this painting, or I saw this and it looks like this. Our reading is the same way and our ability to connect and think about about how we connect things. And the short stories of John Cheever, I've been reading them for the last 20 years. They're timeless. And while they don't have necessarily a business value for me, when you think about a short vignette in a short story, it's like our lives. Every day is a short story, and how we can be better at connecting them. So when I don't have a lot of time, or I'm on a plane and I need to, uh, you know, think about small things, small things in the bigger connection. I love to read collections of short stories. This is a
1: great place to end this session, Amy. Thank you so much for sharing everything that you shared with us. I know it will be very beneficial for our listeners and viewers. Before we wrap up, do you have anything you would like to share?
2: Yes. If any of your uh, listeners would like to find out more about my work, uh, if they're interested in finding about my work or my books, I am at artfulperception.com, www.artfulperception.com. And that details all the people that I work with and my methodology. And I'm out there on social media. And I know this sounds crazy, but at, at Amy Herman AOP, I post a work of art every day and I don't put the title. I don't put the artist. It's just as you asked me something to do every day to renew our sense of looking and thinking about how we ask questions. So I encourage my listeners and my readers at Amy Herman AOP, you'll see a new work of art every day.
1: Thank you, Amy. And I know myself, if I was following it, I would want to know (laughs) the name of the artist. What if I want to look and find it?
2: Absolutely. Some people do. And they (laughs) ask, And I'm always happy to provide that information, but some people love to engage just in the pure object, uh, uh, you know, the pure um, act of looking, but if they do want the information, they just send me a message and I'm happy to provide the information.
1: Sounds wonderful. Amy, thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate your time.
2: Thank you very much for having me. It was a pleasure meeting you. Take care.
1: Thanks everyone again for tuning in. Our guest today again has been Amy Herman. Make sure to check out Amy's book. It's called Fixed, and I'll see you next time.
0: And that's it for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed doing the episode. Finally, I want you to remember that the only way to get access to our special offers, the only way to get our special pricing, and the only way to get samples of our content is to join the list on firmsconsulting.com.